It's Jonathan and a wonderful bunch of contributors back with you for Mosin at Large, episode 77. And today, will guide dogs go the way of the horse and buggy? Plenty of Apple feedback, including a lucky person who has a new iPhone 12, blindness education, one password feedback, and more. Mosin at Large Podcast. You're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736 and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast. And I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. As always, it's wonderful to be back with you. I look forward to this time of the week. Thank you so much for checking out the show once again today. It's a long weekend here in New Zealand. It's our Labor Day weekend. We haven't had a long weekend in New Zealand since the beginning of June when we had our Queen's birthday holiday. Our new reincarnated government has promised us another holiday. And it would make sense to put that somewhere between this long June through late October period where we don't have one at the moment. Anyway, many New Zealanders are making the most of it and took Friday off so that they get a four-day weekend and who can blame them? But here we still are on Mosin at Large having a chat with you about all manner of things. And thanks to you, we have another really interesting show coming up with a diversity of topics and opinions. Now, I wanted to raise this one I've been saving it for a while, and it occurred to me now's a good time to bring it up, because we've been talking about self-driving cars and what prospects they hold for us in terms of the independence of blind people. We've been talking about the smart cane, how this thing that many blind people carry has really not been that intelligent, and now endeavors are being made to make it smarter. And of course, one other form of mobility that some blind people like to use is the guide dog. I think if we're talking about misconceptions that sighted people have about blind people, one of them would have to be that almost every blind person uses and wants a guide dog. In fact, the guide dog using population is very small. Nevertheless, as a former guide dog handler myself, 
I'm well aware of the bliss of cruising down a crowded footpath, or as they call them in America, sidewalks, and weaving around obstacles without even having to encounter them. And of course, there is the companionship that many people enjoy with their canine companions. Of course, it breaks your heart when they die as well. That is the downside. I believe it was Queen Elizabeth who made the profound comment that grief is the price that we pay for love. That's quite profound, that is. Anyway, some time ago, I came across this article and I did contact via LinkedIn the person who was mentioned in this article to see if we could get them on the podcast. And sadly, I didn't get a response, but it has raised all sorts of questions for me. So I'll go through this article. For some, not having a service dog is a choice as they are content with navigating their surroundings using other methods. But for others, it is not even an option due to prohibiting lifestyle reasons, such as allergies, expenses, or house size. Anthony Camus, a final year industrial design and technology student, wanted to design a product that replicates a guide dog's functions for visually impaired people that fall into the latter category. Inspired by virtual reality gaming consoles, he has conceptualized and started to prototype Thea, a portable and concealable handheld device that guides users through outdoor environments and large indoor spaces with very little user input. Essentially, it's a handheld robotic guide dog minus the waggy tail. Inspired by autonomous vehicles, Thea aims to translate that sense of effortless driving into a system of effortless walking, helping users make complex maneuvers without needing to see or think. Anthony says, much like a self-driving car, Thea, which is aptly named after the titan goddess of sight, will program routes to reach destinations and avoids accidents along the way. To use Thea, a user would simply say, Hey Thea, take me to, for example, Cabot Circus. As an Internet of Things IoT device, Thea will then process real-time data available online, such as traffic density, pedestrians and cars, and weather to guide users accurately and safely to their destinations. While guiding a user from A to B, Anthony envisages it will also assist with tackling specific interactions, such as elevators, stairs, entrances, shops, and pedestrian crossings, to name a few. Thea will also have a fail-safe procedure for high-risk scenarios, such as crossing busy intersections. When a user is close to a crossing, Thea will push them back and enter manual mode, which is a bit like using a cane. Situations like these encourage the user to maintain a level of awareness and control when it matters the most, explains Anthony. Anthony aims to combine LiDAR, a remote sensing method that uses light, and cameras so Thea can capture a three-dimensional image of the user's surroundings. Powerful onboard processes will then determine the best path to take and separate routes into individual commands, for example, bare left at 1.4 meters. The problem from here is communicating this information to the visually impaired person, and Thea aims to tackle this by physically leading users. Thea will communicate complex walking maneuvers and actually move users' hands in open spaces using a novel form of force feedback 
that involves a control moment gyroscope, or CMG, tech found in satellites and space vehicles, including the International Space Station. The leading section could be compared to holding a guide dog's brace, that's their term, not mine, i.e. user's holding fear, would be able to feel all the subtleties of speed, direction and vibration, and feel it pulling you along. Anthony says that as the user will not expend mental process or time to interpret Thea's commands, the device has the potential to allow those with visual impairments to match or even surpass the pace of an average pedestrian. Anthony has successfully created prototypes that feature the CMG technology. The prototypes were used to experiment with momentum to manipulate the movements of one's hand. Although the project is in its infancy and has issues such as excessive vibration and braking motors, the potential is there. Following user testing, a unique system of force and resistance was found, which can communicate complex walking maneuvers in real time. Anthony is hoping to build on his design and produce more prototypes by working with design engineers and programmers, perhaps even founding a startup company and launching a crowdfunding campaign. Anthony said, I know this is a grand vision, but I hope people can see the positive effects Thea can have on the blind community. The goal of many non-sighted people is to be independent and live a normal life, but unfortunately, many who endure vision loss feel excluded from situations and activities, which many people take for granted, such as socialization, shopping, or going to restaurants. Such limitations are usually formed due to the fear and anxiety associated with having a partial understanding of the surroundings. Thea has the capacity to expand a blind person's comfort zones and possibilities, broaden their horizons, and allow them to think less about walking and more about what's waiting for them at the end of the route. He added, The ultimate goal is that Thea's users can traverse routes safely and efficiently at the same pace as, or even faster than, ordinary people without the worry and hassle of visualizing the environment. That's the article, and as I share some wider thoughts with you on this topic, let me first be clear that I am a huge dog fan. We had pet dogs when I was a kid, and I've also been a guide dog handler myself. The bond that humans and dogs can establish is incredibly special. And God, no, I've put that old ship song in my head, and if I don't stop thinking about that, I'll collapse in a blubbering heap and won't be able to do the rest of the show. Funny things that dogs do, the loyalty and initiative that they display are so very endearing. They bring joy and companionship to many people. No matter what happens with the future of blindness mobility, that will never change. I also know people who are horse crazy. We have a long history of special bonds between human and horses as a species. But the relationship, of course, has evolved as technology has evolved. We once used horses as a key means of transportation and haulage. Now, most of us don't because we have technological solutions that are more efficient. My question for you to consider is, could the same thing happen with guide dogs, where we all continue to enjoy special bonds with our canine companions, 
but we accept that they are not the most efficient, economic or capable mobility choice available to us. What might the future look like? Well, I'm hypothesizing, and I think the article I just read bears testimony to this, that with technology like LiDAR and a vast array of sensors, GPS and indoor navigation tools and other technologies, I can see a time in the not-too-distant future, actually, where the device that Anthony is working on, or something like it, becomes a reality. An intelligent device that guides us without the need for use of a cane, and it can make many more judgments and give us much more information than a guide dog can today. A combination of GPS, LiDAR, and other sensors could enable you, for example, to instruct this device to get you to a specific business right up to the door without any ambiguity and then locate someone who works for the store. A robot-like device that can read print could make it easier for you to locate the right bus or train when there's no accessible way to identify it. In unfamiliar destinations, such a device could obtain floor map data or use artificial intelligence to guide you. In short, it can do a lot more than a guide dog could, and probably for a lot less money and effort. Guide dogs are, in the end, dogs. They're highly trained, loyal, wonderful dogs. But there are limitations to what they can do. How often have those of us who have worked guide dogs had to gently make a course correction when our guide dog passes a destination we've visited before and tries to turn into that destination just in case we want to go there again. And let's be real, most of us would have had at least one occasion when our dog wasn't feeling well and had a wee whoopsie in a public place or at home, and maybe it took us a while to even find out that the accident had occurred. You have to find a time and place to toilet the dog feed the dog. And most of us who've been guide dog handlers have faced at least one case of discrimination when all you're trying to do is go about your business like everybody else. And then there's the economics of guide dogs. One of the guide dog schools in the United States estimates that the cost of a guide dog team from the birth of the dog all the way to when the guide dog retires could be as high as 70,000 US dollars. The figures vary a bit from school to school, and there are many in the United States. In the UK, Guide Dogs UK lay out the costs very clearly on their website. They say that in 2018, the cost of a guide dog was broken down as follows. Breeding and puppy walking cost £10,100. The cost of breeding, training and partnership, £48,100. And ongoing support is another £2,500. They then make the point that on average, a blind person who chooses to be a guide dog handler has eight guide dogs in their lifetime, making the total around half a million pounds per blind person. Now, if we accept these figures, say $70,000 American for a guide dog team, and let's say that the partnership goes really well and lasts 10 years, Many don't last that long, so it's quite an optimistic figure. You're looking at around 7,000 American dollars per year. Now imagine what you might be able to achieve if a blind person had access to that level of annual funding for emerging guiding technology. It won't be long before you get much better value for money. 
That said, I readily concede that the same pool of money that's there for guide dogs would not be there for this sort of emerging technology. Because, let's pull no punches over this, guide dogs tug at the heartstrings of a lot of sighted people. They gain comfort from the facts, as they perceive it, that we have an animal taking care of us. That's not what every donor thinks, of course, but you'd be surprised how many otherwise intelligent sighted people do think it. I recently heard about a funding authority in a country that I won't name that declined to approve funding for an OrCam device that a blind applicant wanted to help read material and perform other functions that the OrCam is capable of because they had a guide dog and the funder said that the guide dog should be able to read that information to them. I am not making that up. This is a difficult topic for many because of the bond that we share with our four-legged friends. And so people will think, man, what a heartless thing to say, to suggest that we could replace our wonderful guide dogs with hunks of silicon chips and metal. And I completely get that because I loved my guide dog and I've loved the other dogs that I've lived with. I think I would always want a dog around, a dog in my life, a dog in my house. But in terms of efficiency and outcomes, will the guide dog go the way of the horse? Because let's not forget that when the motor car came along, a lot of people felt the same way, that we were losing something special. And yet technology inexorably marched on. What do you think? Give us a call on the listener line if you would like. That number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. 864-606-6736. You can email an audio clip recorded on your smartphone or computer, or you can just write the email down and send it in to Jonathan, J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Will uh, guide robots replace guide dogs? Well, the short answer is I suppose they certainly could, as my dog munches on his food right now. They would have to be equally accessible, uh, through whether it be through charitable contributions or, or the robot companies themselves or what have you, and kind of in the same way as guide dogs. And the question then would be, how much agency would the user have? Would it be like a guide dog? Would it be where you would say, you know, turn right at the next corner? Or, like, or would the robot tell you to turn right at the next corner? Because that's what I wouldn't want. I wouldn't want that to happen because you'd lose all your mobility skills. If the robot told you to turn right at the next corner because you told it where to go, that would be one thing. Like you'd put in a route or something and said, you know, get me there as safely as possible to to the pub or what have you. Then that would be fine because at least it's telling you that it's used its cameras and its sensors or whatever to determine the safest route possible. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, I, I think it would be a sad day for me personally if that happened because... The, the major reason I got a guide dog, I have to tell you, well, one reason was I was beginning to just, just feel clunky and slow with the cane over the years. And the next reason was I just wanted to work with a dog and I happened to have a disability that allowed me to have that relationship. So I don't know. It's an interesting question. Uh, and we'll just have to see what the future holds, I suppose. Audley Blackburn is emailing in from Austin, Texas. He says, I don't think so. 
I did a new route for the first time today with an IRA agent and my dog guide, and he used his judgment getting around obstacles and two traffic checks at a very fast intersection before the agent could see the cars coming. A robot can't do that. If I have a self-driving car, I would use an agent and my dog to find the door to the destination. Hi Jonathan, it's Tanya Harrison here. And this is a very interesting topic you're raising this week about guide dogs versus guide robots. I've been a guide dog user in the past and I also have had pet dogs as well. And personally, I guess because I'm a smaller build, I found guide dogs are a little large um and as much as i love dogs i found it hard to do certain maneuvers like you know trying to get them to go on your chair and things like that when they want to you know need to lie down and things and whilst i think that a robot would take away the bond that many of us love with our dogs with our guide dogs um i think for Someone like me, I would still like to have a pet dog um, because I like the fact that I can snuggle up with them and do all those doggy things that guide dogs. Some things with guide dogs, you know, you can't have them on your bed and things like that. Well, I I like that with a pet and I like little dogs. So I would actually personally welcome a robot guide dog because it may be able to, to um, be a little bit more um, manageable when it comes to manoeuvrability. Having said that, I'd never get rid of a pet dog because of the bond. And as I said, I know many people have that with their guide dogs. Um, but I've seen the occasional blind person really struggle with the bonding aspect with their dog. They, they just want a thing that's going to do the job for them. And they really struggle to understand that part of what makes that work is the bond and I think for those people a guide dog robot would or a guiding robot would be a very good thing also um the other reason that I would like a a bot just um compared to a guide dog is because I like to go into a lot of places where dogs get distracted for example um I like going into a lot of secondhand shops and things like that I was always told, don't take your dog with you. It might nibble things and it might get distracted or it might get bored. Well, at least a bot wouldn't do that. Hi, Jonathan. It's Allison Malloy in Cincinnati, Ohio. I wanted to weigh in on this subject of guide dogs and if technology will replace them. On a very practical level, I believe that they could. As you had said, technology is very easy to manufacture and program, and it's cheaper than training a guide dog, almost certainly. And, of course, you have less access issues. You will have, of course, less of those accidents. Although I have to say, in all my years of having my Gary, there was very little of that. But I know that I was lucky in that regard. An area where I think that the technology might be a disadvantage over the guide dog, though, is in those split-second life and death decisions that a guide dog can make that I'm not certain that technology can. For example, I was about to cross a street with Gary, 
and I verified both with the audible signal and the traffic that it was okay to go. I told him forward, and a very impatient bus pulled out in front of us against the light. Now, Gary was able to block me, and both our lives were saved because of his quick action. I don't know if tech would be able to be programmed to react as quickly and to change what it was about to do as quickly as the dog can change what they are about to do. Also for me, and I know for for you and for, I would imagine, all guide dog owners, certainly most, that the emotional bond that exists between a dog and a handler is just so very special. And I don't know that I would ever want to give that up, even with the pain and heartache that comes along with loss. Um, uh, my Gary passed away of cancer almost a year ago now, and it has been the most difficult thing that I've ever been through in my life. Absolutely. But I had almost six years of unconditional love and he taught me so much about loving others unconditionally and I don't think technology could ever do that now yes on my bad days where I am feeling really depressed and and missing him so much I wonder if a if a robot might be a better choice but most days I'm really happy with the decision that I'm making to go forward and and eventually get another guide dog because I I don't know that you could ever love a piece of technology like you could a dog. That having been said, though, I can definitely understand how some might feel that the impersonality of that technology might be an advantage because it would spare you heartache. And I would certainly never uh, judge anybody who would make the decision for tech- to use the technology for that reason. Carol Ashland says, I have had eight guide dogs during my life. I have reluctantly come to the conclusion that I do not think it ethical to work dogs as guides. There is just too much that can happen to a dog while working. They can be attacked by loose dogs. They can be stepped on by other people on buses or other vehicles. I just think it's too hard on the dogs. I doubt that guide robots will be built. We are just too small a percentage of the general population. I wish that such a thing would happen, though. Hey there, Jonathan. Daniel here from Montreal, Quebec, Canada. I am a guide dog user, and I have had a guide dog, uh, German Shepherds, because I'm on my second now, for about 12 years now. I work at a community center teaching English and French, obviously to immigrants, uh, as a second language. And I have been doing this for about four years now. You probably don't get much news about Quebec in New Zealand, so I have to interrupt this little rant by explaining that Quebec is uh, Trump Jr. here. We have been fascist at best and extremely ethnocentric against the English at worst for many years now. I'd say maybe since 1976. This means that Quebec's immigration policy tends to lean very much towards French-speaking countries, 
most of which are in Africa, according to Quebec. Of course, those immigrants, when they come here, have to live somewhere. And unfortunately for me, most of them live in an area where I work. This means that 90% of the people that I meet are Muslims who either hate or fear dogs. The men kind of make me laugh because I guess somewhere along the line, someone has told them that they cannot refuse a service dog. So now what they do is they tell you they are allergic to the dog. It's the women that really annoy me because for some reason, many of them let out this <coughs> screech every time they see the dog. For about three years, I guess I was able to tolerate this, but uh, I guess COVID kind of came at a good time for me because I'm able to work from home because at the end of the third year, coming into my fourth year working at this community center, I was beginning to feel like this experience of rejecting the dog and in the way the dog was being rejected was becoming a very hurtful experience for me. And I was becoming exceedingly angry. In fact, I would often even get rejections from the clients uh, when I would take adaptive transport with my old dog because my old dog had a lot of trouble walking. So, of course, the taxi drivers would let me in the cab but it was the other passengers, the other disabled clients that would tell me that they hate dogs or they're allergic to dogs. To those who didn't like dogs, I would just simply tell them, I didn't ask you to like him, I asked you to tolerate him. There is a social aspect that I would very much miss if guide dogs were to be terminated as working dogs. Because even though you're not really supposed to, I do take my dog to a public park to play while you're not really supposed to because it does undo a bit of their training and they do want to play with other dogs even when in harness. So in that sense, I do get to meet a lot of people that do like dogs and, and respect a dog as, as a working dog. And I do get a chance to teach a bit about guide dog etiquette when I go to a park, but I guess, professionally speaking, I could do without the stress of um, <laughs> the cruel rejection the dog has to face. And I can only imagine from his point of view what that must feel for him. Uh, because for me personally, I can't see why he's so rejected even nowadays, even with all the laws. I mean, this is a dog that is helping someone get from one place to another. Okay, so they can't see red or green lights, and they can't read street signs. But they have phenomenal memories, and on repeated routes, they can go to and from where you need to go, uh, and you don't really have to tell them much of anything. So they actually still do serve a purpose. But yes, a GPS system could certainly alleviate some of the problems 
uh, getting around with just a simple white cane would present for us. But again, professionally speaking, I do believe that there is just too much work to be done in order to accept dogs because guide dog schools aren't putting out special announcements telling the public what these dogs can and can't do and how people shouldn't really be interacting with the dogs. So the guide dog schools aren't really helping us either in terms of the service they provide. Because for me, it's more than just about just providing a dog. You have to be able to educate the public about the dog and not just in fundraising events, but you actually have to put out the funds to advertise, to have special announcements telling us, this is a guide dog, this is what it is doing, please do not interrupt. I think that would really be helpful. Thanks, Daniel. I certainly support people coming to a new country and setting up a new and us being welcoming of diversity, all those good things. However, if you come to a new country, you obey its laws. And we have fought around the world long and hard for the right to take guide dogs into public places on public transportation. And if there are people who object to that, then they shouldn't emigrate to countries where those laws exist, or they should choose a profession where it's highly unlikely they would come into contact with guide dogs and service animals in general. Taxi driving, obviously, is one of those professions where you're going to do that. And if you're going to assert a religious objection to dogs, then do another job. It's as simple as that. So I would hate for any progress that we make on new technologies that could one day replace the guide dog to in any way be motivated by a sense of capitulation. That would be terrible. Mosin at Large Podcast. More Apple things. We always seem to get Apple things on the show. Hi, Jonathan, says Kelly Superger. I hope things are going well with you here in Moose Jaw. I think we're in for an early winter as we're starting to get a bit of snow and it's getting colder outside. Baby, it's colder. I listened to the uh, Apple event audio described while I enjoyed the description. I think they should have turned the volume down a bit while the describer was talking, as in my opinion, he was drowned out slightly by the original audio. I thought that too, Kelly, but I thought it might just be me. Yeah, it was pretty hard at times to hear what the describer was saying. There's a real knack to this, isn't there? You know, I hear quite a few audio-described movies where I don't think they get the balance quite right either. The extreme opposite, of course, is when you get this really dramatic audio ducking of the main soundtrack, and it's almost like somebody's pushing a button on a walkie-talkie where they start to talk and the main volume of the soundtrack is dropped suddenly without any kind of fade at all, and then <laughs> the describer stops talking and it's like someone's flicked a switch. There's no fade up again. Horrible, horrible. Anyway, Kelly continues. One thing I'm curious about, as far as new phones are concerned, is if OCR has improved. I say this because I am absolutely terrible when it comes to scanning a page using my iPhone 7 Plus's camera. I can scan text using Seeing AI's short text feature with reasonable success, but not so with the document feature or products like Voice Dream Scanner. No matter what I do, I can't get all four edges of a page to be in focus. 
I'm wondering if anyone has any suggestions to get a good scan. If the 7 Plus's camera is a problem, which is the better phone to go for? I think, Kelly, that you will see some improvement with cameras on newer phones because the field of view has become better. They're performing better in low light conditions. So I think newer phone cameras are just a bit more tolerant of suboptimal conditions. If you can, see if you can get a sighted person to comment on how much natural light there is in the area where you're trying to take the photos. You might want to try turning lights on if they're not on, for example, and see if that helps with what the camera sees. For some people, a stand that puts their phone at exactly the right height for a printed page can really help, at least initially, to get a feel for the right distance that you should be holding the phone. And another thing I would suggest is that you consider using one of the human assistance services, Ira or Be My Eyes, have the document in front of you or a document that you can test with and say, I think Ira would be very good for this because you've got a professional at the other end who's trained to describe things to you. And of course, you can make a free five-minute call with Ira. You could call Ira and say to them, what do I actually have to do here to get all four corners in the view? And they might be able to give you a bit of coaching because they'll see on your screen what the camera is seeing. And as I say, I was really good at giving those descriptions. But if you can, treat yourself to a new iPhone, mate. The iPhone 7 Plus came out a while ago now, so you would notice a massive boost in performance. There will be some new features. And yes, the camera would definitely be much more tolerant. If you like the plus-sized phones, and clearly you're the kind of person that purchases your iPhone and keeps it around for a while, then if you can swing it, I'd go for an iPhone 12 Pro Max. You'll have the 5G there. You'll have that plus size that you like. You'll have the best camera on the market today in an iPhone, and it should last you a few years as 5G continues to be rolled out. I don't know whether there is 5G in Moose Jaw but you'd think it will get there eventually if it's not there yet. But as always, if people have hints, perhaps they've struggled with the camera and had a revelation moment of some kind or some technique or tip that has really helped them out, by all means, share it and we'll enjoy it. In other Apple news, by now people have taken possession of iPhone 12s and iPhone 12 Pros, as long as the iPhones haven't taken possession of you. That would be a much more interesting story, actually. 5G is here, and there are a few things that we have learned over the week. 5G is not, at the moment, working on dual-SIM iPhones. And a lot of people have enjoyed this feature of the newer iPhones. This is where you can have a physical SIM in the SIM card slot, the nano SIM card slot. And you can also have an eSIM. You can actually have any number of eSIMs in your phone, but only one eSIM active at a time. There are many benefits of this. One is that when you travel, you can have, say, a local SIM in the SIM card slot from the country that you're in, from a local carrier. And that means that you're not stung with exorbitant roaming charges when you're making calls or using data. So that's cool. Also, some people use it so that they can have their home number and their business number on the same phone. Beats carrying two devices around, doesn't it? I tend to use dual SIM just for backup purposes, that 
if one carrier goes down, has some sort of outage, or perhaps I'm just in a poor coverage area for that carrier, then I have access to another one. So I have an account with one carrier, and then I'm on prepay with another carrier. It's really cool. But if you use dual SIM with an iPhone 12, for the moment at least, then that will disable the 5G. So the workaround is to either take out the physical SIM and just use the eSIM or vice versa. Just just use one of the SIMs available to you, whether it be the eSIM or the physical SIM, and then you will get 5G. Apple is indicating an internal documentation for their store and support employees that this is a temporary shortcoming and that there will be a software update, so presumably some fix in a later iOS build that will allow you to use 5G with dual SIM. So that'll be good. As I expected we would, we are also alerting that 5G is a real battery hog, and that's been the case with Android devices too, although early benchmarking suggests that 5G may be a bit more of a battery hog for Apple than it has been for Android. And this is why Apple has been quite aggressive about this mode. You can disable the mode, by the way, so you're forced onto 5G whenever it's available. But unless you disable this default mode, what happens is that Apple only turns on 5G when it thinks you really need it in order to conserve battery life. Also, word coming through that the battery in the iPhone 12 Pro Max, which has yet to be released, actually is smaller than the iPhone 11 Pro Max. However, Apple is still quoting the same amount of battery life on the 12 Pro Max, so it's possible that they've been able to make economies in terms of processor utilization and just shrink the size of the battery ever so slightly. But if you have the iPhone 12 or the iPhone 12 Pro Max, I know lots of people would like to hear how you're getting on with it, whether you're enjoying it, whether you've taken it for a rip-roaring tour of 5G and what your speeds are like. I see a number of tech reviewers are saying what I've been saying, which makes me feel a bit less like I'm telling people to get off my lawn, and that people are likely to be disappointed with 5G for the foreseeable future as the infrastructure rolls out. But that said, the fact that Apple is now into 5G is a huge incentive for networks to accelerate their build-up of uh, 5G, their rollout of 5G infrastructure. So it's a necessary step along the 5G journey. I have been mentioning over some weeks now, probably even longer, that I have been having no end of trouble with battery life on my Apple Watch. This goes back about a year now. I always said that I would not get another Apple Watch until one of our carriers supported the Apple Watch cellular. It was annoying because New Zealand sort of prides itself these days on being a bit of a technology test bed. We've got world-class gigabit and more now infrastructure. Some of our top plans now like eight gigs down and four gigs up or something crazy like that. We've got a culture that lends itself to early adoption of technology and many companies take advantage of that. But it took a while for one carrier to bring in eSIM support here that was compatible with the Apple Watch. And in fact, we still only have one carrier that does. So I decided I would hold out. And the moment that Spark, which is the name of the carrier here, got the eSIM, I got my Series 5 with cellular and I was thrilled. But what I quickly found was that battery life was abysmal. And I asked around about this and people sort of said, no, that's not typical. It's really frustrating when you have a problem that most people don't and the problem is real. But, you know, when these things happen, sometimes people don't believe you. You know, they think you're the problem. 
even though you've done everything. So I have over the last year with my Series 5 reset it on several occasions. I pulled back on the number of third-party apps that I was running, thinking maybe I've got a rogue third-party app. And I uninstalled some much-cherished Apple Watch apps, thinking maybe something's hogging all the battery life. And, you know, I fooled around with background app refresh. I reset it multiple times. I did all sorts of things. And for a while, it would come right. In fact, I finally established what the pattern was. Sometimes I would set up the watch as new, like completely wipe it and set it up as a new Apple Watch and go through all the settings and set them up again. You know, this has been really time consuming. And then sometimes I would restore from an existing backup. In both cases, what seemed to happen was when I started using the watch after that process, I would get tremendous battery life, battery life that I would expect from the device. And I would think, fuel, fuel, I would think. It's, it's done, it's over. Then I would charge it. And when I took the phone off charge, the first sort of significant charging cycle after I'd done the restore or reset, we'd be back to square one. It would do it again. I wouldn't be able to get through, say, a 24-hour cycle without having to charge it at some point. So what I typically do is when I've got my rings closed, my move exercise and stand rings closed, I would put it on charge in the evening because I sleep with the watch on because it's an alarm. It's a tactile alarm and I can't always hear non-tactile alarms, audible alarms with my hearing aids out. So it's a very useful tool. And then I would use the watch, you know, just keep on using the watch. Well, it was difficult for me to get through a day that way, I got into the habit of having to charge it again in the morning. So it wasn't a trivial thing. And we don't have an Apple store in the whole of New Zealand. We have these repair places that are authorized by Apple, but nowhere you can take it, nowhere where you can go to a genius bar like most parts of the world, which is in itself an annoyance. You'd think that a city like Auckland is large enough to warrant an Apple store, but we don't have one at the moment. And I waited for various operating system updates, the lockdown hit, various things. And then Series 6 came out, and I thought, actually, there are a few things in Series 6 that I want. The blood oxygen support, the 5 gig Wi-Fi support, the faster charging, especially with the predicament that I have. So I got the Series 6, and I thought, well, all right, this is one way of fixing it. But it did not fix it. The battery life problems just persisted with the Series 6. Oi! That was most frustrating. That's what that was. So I thought, what can the issue be? And I thought, well, I I will call Apple about this because this is getting ridiculous. But of course, by that stage, I was on the beta track and I needed to get off the beta track and I knew it was going to be a while. Then in the context of other people who were suddenly experiencing poor battery life, I heard Apple suggesting that people should not just reset their watch, which I had done on many occasions, but that they should reset their phones as well. And I mean, that is a big thing. Even if you encrypt your iTunes backup, which I do, and back it up to iTunes and then restore, you've then got to make sure that you open all of your apps again that send you push notifications. And I've got, I don't know, about 400-odd apps that send me push notifications at various times. So it's a big thing to go through all those apps, run them once, so that once again, push notifications are going to work. So I tried to avoid this, and I thought, I wonder if 
just resetting network settings will be enough to fix whatever this might be. So I reset my network settings and I was quite surprised that network setting resets aren't as drastic as they used to be. And I don't know whether that's because I now have made for iPhone hearing aids that use the Bluetooth protocol. But in the past, when I've done a reset of network settings, I've lost my keyboard pairing, my braille display pairing, all that kind of stuff. I didn't lose any Bluetooth pairing at all this time. So just to be sure, I also reset my watch again. And of course, at first it was beautiful. It was glorious. I went through a whole day of using the watch and by 24 hours, it was down to about 50 odd percent, which was just peachy, peachy. So I thought that's very encouraging. But then I put it on charge, let it go up to 100 percent, and then the battery plummeted all over again. So finally, Last weekend, while Bonnie was away at her writer's conference and I was lonely, moping around the house in the middle of the night, I came down to the office. I backed up my iPhone to iTunes with an encrypted backup and did a reset, or at least I tried to. Because every time I did the erase all content and settings option from general and then reset, it wouldn't let me do it. Or it would give me a warning anyway and say, material is being backed up to the cloud right now. And I thought, oh, maybe it's just doing an iCloud backup. So I'll give it a while. And I gave it a while and still I could not reset. And then I thought to myself, it seems to be stuck permanently on this thing. And so I overrode it. It said, do you want to erase anyway? And I said, yes, I do. And I erased and I restored from the backup and I did the watch again, just to be sure, did a reset of the watch used it for a good long period. The battery life was glorious again, put it on charge and got the sinking feeling. And I thought, okay, here we go again. But I have to tell you that from that day to this, and I am really knocking on wood rather aggressively here, but it's been a week now and the battery life is superb on this Apple Watch Series 6. So it does make me wonder whether there was some rogue background process that had been going on all this time and it's strange to me that that would be the case because I've upgraded operating systems on various occasions you know beta and otherwise but at least at the moment the battery life on my Apple Watch Series 6 is rocking rocking and I can indeed after multiple charges count on the fact that with a bit of basic use maybe not a lot of messaging and cruising around with voiceover, which does drain the battery quite quickly, I guess, because it's doing audio. But for example, I can send the odd text message. I can do a 25, 30 minute workout and have about 50%, sometimes a little more left after 24 hours of use. So that gives me confidence that I can start using the watch for more things. I like being able to send audio messages from the watch, for instance, and doing other things. And who knows, maybe I will even get the confidence at some point to install some of the third-party apps back on my watch that I have uninstalled and that I have been missing while I try to resolve this battery issue. But I hope that that is the last I see of it, because it was frustrating. And I feel I feel better about my Apple Watch now than I have in quite some time. Long may it last. And while we're on the subject of the Apple Watch, here's Addy from India, who says, Hi, Jonathan, glad to inform you that yesterday I got my first Apple Watch. It feels nice that I have managed to set it up and it is running well now. 
However, it feels overwhelming at times with so much information and choices available with respect to settings and watch faces and complications. See, complicated complications. Just asking a few of my initial queries in case you can guide. One, is there any specific watch face or complication recommended for voiceover users, or is it just a personal preference? I think I'll answer these as they arise, Addy. So uh, I think it is, in the main, a personal preference. It depends on what you're after. I like the modular watch face. That seems to be pretty good. If you are interested in getting the most information on your watch, then you'll want to take a look at the infograph watch face because you can pack a lot of complications in on the infograph watch face. And sometimes people have different watch faces for different times of day or different use cases. For example, if you're working, you may have a set of complications pertaining to your work, giving prominence to the calendar, um, reminders maybe, various other things like that. And then as you get into social mode, you might have another watch face. So it is very much a personal preference. And remember that people can now share their watch faces with you, which is a really cool thing about watchOS 7. Two, say if I need to listen to Mosin at Night podcast on my watch, can I do it? If yes, do we need another earphone or the same can be done without the use of any earphone? I believe it is still the case, Addy, that it's necessary to use headphones. Of course, that will be Bluetooth of some kind to listen to podcasts. There are various apps. Apple's own podcast app has excellent watchOS integration. And so do many others, including Castro and Downcast and Overcast and, as I say, many others. So, yeah, that's the way to do it. Use your podcast app of choice. See if they have a watchOS app. If they don't have a watchOS app and that's important to you, might be time to change podcast apps. Three, how does one close an app on the Apple Watch? Well, what one does is hold down the side button until you get to the screen that says power off. Then hold down the digital crown until you get back to the home screen that will have closed the app. In normal circumstances, though, Apple says that its super-duper handy-dandy power management features mean that you shouldn't need to worry about closing apps. But that is how you do it. Probably do it only if an app is misbehaving. Four, how does one know which apps are accessible on the watch? Are there some additional settings which we can enable to make the experience with VoiceOver better? Basically, the answer to that is try them, Addy. See how they work out for you. And if they don't work out, you can, of course, delete the app. And I'll come back to your other question in the email, which is not related to Apple, in a future edition of the podcast. Thanks so much for the inquiry. Hi, Jonathan, says this next email. My name is Joanne, and I reside in Nashville, Tennessee. Mercy! I wanted to get your opinion of the battery life of the SE 2020. I listened to the Applevis Extra 78 podcast a few days ago, and Scott David stated that the battery life of the SE 2020 is terrible. My husband and I will be purchasing new phones in the next few months, and I am considering the SE 2020 because it's the same size as my iPhone 8. It still has the home button and touch ID, and it's more in line with my budget. But since I heard that statement, I'm not sure what to do, so I thought I would seek your advice. 
I love your podcasts and always find them enjoyable and informative. I'm so glad you enjoy them. Thank you so much for writing in, Joanne. All right. Well, I coincidentally just stumbled upon this article yesterday, which talks about Aaron Maney, who I'm not familiar with, but I think he's a YouTuber, and he shared a side-by-side iPhone battery life video test on his YouTube channel. And what this does is it times how long the new iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro models last on a single charge compared to older models with equal brightness, settings, battery health, and usage. All the devices are running iOS 14 with a SIM card inserted. In the test, the iPhone 11 Pro outlasted both the 6.1-inch iPhone 12 and iPhone 12 Pro, despite being a smaller 5.8-inch device. When the iPhone 12 Pro ran out of battery, the iPhone 11 Pro still had 18% battery life remaining. And when the iPhone 12 powered off, the iPhone 11 Pro still had 14% battery life remaining. Now, I'm going to go through the whole list for you, Joanne, because the SE2020 is referenced. So let's start with the iPhone 11 Pro Max, That lasted 8 hours and 29 minutes. The iPhone 11 Pro lasted 7 hours and 36 minutes. The iPhone 12, 6 hours and 51 minutes. And the iPhone 12 Pro, 6 hours and 35 minutes. Of course, they can't check the iPhone 12 Pro Max or the iPhone 12 Mini yet because they haven't been released. So continuing through, the iPhone 11 had 5 hours and 8 minutes, the iPhone XR, 4 hours and 31 minutes, and the iPhone SE 2020, 3 hours and 59 minutes. Now, I have had no direct experience of the iPhone SE 2020, so I can't comment. But based on that one study, and bear in mind, it's one user, I don't know how scientific that data is, But that data suggests that the iPhone SE 2020 does indeed have abysmal battery life, uh, which would back up what Scott had to say, who does know his stuff. So I don't know what others are experiencing. I know that the iPhone SE 2020 is really popular in the blind community because it doesn't have Face ID. So I'm sure people will comment on the battery life and whether they are happy with it or not. So I don't really have an opinion either way just reading what uh, I came across yesterday. One thing I do have an opinion on, though, is I do wonder, now that the iPhone 12 range is out, whether it's a good long-term investment to go with the iPhone SE 2020. You won't have 5G, and although that doesn't matter now, you know, in a city like Nashville, they probably already have 5G, and I'm sure there will be a lot more of it. So if you're going to make your phone last as long as possible, you may well come to regret not having 5G. You also don't have LiDAR, which you would get in the Pro iPhone 12 or the Pro Max. And that may or may not be terribly relevant depending on what applications people find in a blindness context. It does sound quite promising. So there are a few things to consider. And I guess it just depends on how important Touch ID is to you. I think eventually there will be Touch ID of a new kind we hear consistent rumors about under-screen fingerprint sensing and things like that. So those are just some thoughts. But specifically on your battery life question, that's what I found. It would be really interesting to hear others' real-world experiences 
with battery life of the iPhone SE 2020. Good luck with your purchasing decisions. It's always hard to choose, isn't it? We are now in the hallowed company of someone who owns an iPhone 12. (laughs) Be still, my heart. It's Tristan Clare, and she says, Hi, Jonathan. I am the proud owner of a brand new iPhone 12. I did consider getting the Pro, but thought an extra $600 for earpods and a charging brick in the box was a bit steep. So I opted for the standard model instead. Sheesh, I'm glad you didn't get it if that was the reason, Tristan, because none of the iPhones come with a charging brick or the earpod, so you will have been very disappointed. My previous phone was an original iPhone X, so this is a considerable upgrade for me. Unsurprisingly, I'm seeing a big improvement in responsiveness and audio quality. I haven't looked into the 5G yet, but it's something I'll definitely check out in the future. The main reason I'm writing in, though, is about the aesthetic quality of the iPhone 12. I ordered the red one only because on the Apple Store app, it said that a percentage of the price of all iPhone 12s would be going towards COVID research. I don't usually give a lot of thought to the colour of my phone because I put it in a wallet case that covers the back, which is the coloured part. But I figured COVID research is a pretty good cause, and the red was the same price as all the others, so I bought it. I also purchased a cheap case on eBay, hoping it would arrive at the same time. Well, my phone arrived yesterday, but I'm still waiting for the case, so my phone is going around almost caseless. Progress, say I. Anyway, she continues. I say almost because I did unearth a rubber lanyard case that was recommended to me when I first joined the pilot plan of Ira back in 2018. Its main advantage is that the loop for the lanyard strap is at the top of the case in the center rather than at the corner. So if you're using the phone hands free, then the camera is angled straight rather than at a slant. Also, as it's a piece of rubber with holes cut out, it displays the lovely shiny red back of the phone and I have unfettered access to the screen. It's easy to hold and I don't have a flappy wallet lid to contend with. The main disadvantage is that my phone is more vulnerable to damage from being dropped. I abandoned this case last time because it's held on by stretching over the corners of the phone, and one of the corners slipped off. Thus, my phone sprung free and fell on a hard floor. It was pure luck that it wasn't damaged, and I went back to wallet cases pretty quickly after that. So I'm in a quandary. Do I take the safe option and hide my shiny, shiny new phone in a wallet case, Or do I show off all its aesthetic advantages but risk possible screen damage? As a person who goes caseless, I wonder if you have any tips for keeping your phone safe without the padding of a case. Do you use a screen protector? If so, have you found any that don't get sticky even after they've been cleaned? If not, what do you do beyond just being careful to keep your phone safe? Have you ever cracked a screen or had a major breakage? Anyway, I'm undecided about what I'll do in the long run, but my wallet case will arrive eventually, so I have both options at my disposal. Speaking of aesthetics, I'm really loving the return to the old-school iPhone look, 
especially the smooth, rounded edges. I was never a fan of the thinner, flatter design of later models, though of course it wasn't a big enough aversion to keep me from upgrading. Good on you, Tristan, for getting the new phone, and no, I don't use a screen protector, I'm just careful. Way back in the iPhone... 4S days, I believe it must have been. I'm just going back in my mind. I did crack a phone. But, you know, since then, I just learned to be a lot more careful. And remember, the glass on these things is so much stronger than it used to be, particularly in the iPhone 12 range. One of the big advantages that Apple touted at the launch was that it's twice as strong as it used to be. So I'm not sure I agree with you that when you dropped your phone, it was luck that it didn't get damaged. They're just much stronger than many people realize now. And I think that one of the great things about Apple products is they tend to be works of art. You know, a lot of design thought goes into them and then we cover them up, or a lot of people do, in these horrible cases. I hope you enjoy your caseless lifestyle, Tristan. And I know that when I've talked to people about this and they've given it a go, many have not gone back because they really appreciate how the device feels in their hand. And I think some people did find that the previous shape of the iPhones that we're now moving away from, that us old people have with our iPhone 11s and lower, was a bit harder to hold. But of course, the iPhone 12 should be easier. And I am getting that feedback from people that uh, it actually is a really nice thing to hold. But, you know, I kind of wish you had recorded a contribution, Tristan, because I'd be interested in hearing whether there's any difference in the microphone of the iPhone 12, whether they've done anything to the audio processing. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Podcast. More on the education topic. Brian Borowski says the discussion regarding schooling has been an interesting one. It seems to me that it depends so much on many various circumstances, the student, local resources, creativity and commitment of parents and the school for the blind in one's area. In the case of my brother and me, we went to the school for the blind in Bransford until grade 12. After that, we went to regular high schools in our area to do grade 13. At that time, it existed in Ontario, Canada. There were people at the school in Bransford that could adapt to the situation, and there were those who could not. We did, and availed ourselves of what was offered. Music classes like piano lessons, musical instruments and orchestra, organ lessons, and the various extracurricular phys ed-related activities. We never could have had these extras in a regular sighted person's school. I am sure of this because there were a number of students who left at the grade 8 level to go into the Toronto school system, a system that was considered to be well-equipped to accommodate them. Some of these students are still very good friends, and in our discussions about education, they have told me that when they look back on it, they believe they should probably have stayed in Bransford. Once again, that is also influenced by their home environment, as you might expect. The things they say they missed out on were phys ed and other extracurricular activities in which they could not participate in the schools they went to. For my brother and me, there was a bit of adjustment that needed to be made when we went into the high school in our area. But we managed it, and we also had the good fortune of having a few good teachers that put some extra work into moving us forward, extra math, and giving us extra instruction during our lunchtime. 
There were no special teachers to assist us at that level. The phys ed got us into the classes in the high school because of our scholastic wrestling at Bransford, and we were good enough at it to represent the school and even into the first year at university, at which point the discrimination against my blindness forced me out. They wouldn't let me get into the first string, even though I could wipe the other guy in my weight class. The coach from Bransford even went so far as to have discussions with the university wrestling team coach, but he informed me that I was up against a wall that couldn't be broken through, which is where that career ended. My mother also learned Braille during my grade one and two years, and we purchased a Perkins Braille writer. She forced us to read books in the summer, an hour a day, and it made us good readers early on. She wrote us Braille letters while we were in Bransford, and we wrote back to her in like manner, because the staff at that school always read the print mail to us, and Braille meant that we could remove this information compromise from our communication channel. Our parents always encouraged, perhaps pushed us to learn and do many things and helped us. My father did a lot of soldering together my ideas as we built electronic projects until we learned methods of doing so for ourselves. They never told us we were different than others when we were young. We knew our sighted brother could do something we couldn't do, but it seemed a perfectly normal state of affairs to us. And only later on, when we went to the school in Bransford, did we realize the extent of the difference and start to become aware of the complications as a result of that difference. I am grateful they managed it that way. I am so glad I went to the School for the Blind in Bransford, and I have other good friends who feel the same way. There are also certainly others I know who don't feel that way. That's why you'll find no right answer in these discussions, but it is so interesting to hear about the experiences of others. Thank you very much for your contribution, Brian. That was great. You talking about the letters coming in from family members and them being read out by staff brings so many memories back to me that I haven't thought about for years. I remember sitting in classes at the School for the Blind, which I attended in the first part of my education, and the teachers would read these letters that would come in from family members around the country and it was almost like being tuned into a soap opera because you'd get to know all the different family members. I can still remember the names of siblings and the nicknames that grandparents were given in certain families so vividly because you'd listen to the updates coming in. It was a phenomenal breach of privacy when you look back on it, wasn't it? You know, that your family's stuff was being read in front of an entire class but we'd all listen to the letters from various family members, quite captivated. All a bit dodgy, I suppose, when you look back on it. Nelson at Large Podcast! Hi, Jonathan. It's Daniel Semro here on the old Backpack Studio app. Um, I wanted to comment on my voting experience. I voted for the first time today, and it all went well. They allowed my mom into the voting area with me to read um, the ballot and help me pick my candidates. It looked like, according to what my mom said, I could wear headphones and do it. We didn't try that. We also did not inquire. So 
um, I'm going by what my mom told me versus probably the truth. But um, yes, it was a good experience and didn't take long. And then we went out for lunch afterward. <laughs> so I'm glad you brought up the subject because I had the chance today to make a comment. Well, I hope you enjoyed the experience, Daniel. There is something quite empowering, isn't there, about casting your first vote? Yes, it was a very, 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 very long time ago for me, but I still remember voting for the first time. I have been listening to Parliament and following parliamentary things, political things, since I was about four. I remember very clearly, for example, President Nixon's resignation in 1974 when I was five. And I remember that Nixon was on the radio when we at school used to listen to a program called Music and Movement. It was a kid's thing. We used to have this thing that the government did called Broadcast to Schools, and they used to broadcast all sorts of wholesome and educational programming to the schools, and we'd turn on and hear them. And I was aware that there was a possibility that Nixon might resign. And then when they turned on the radio and um, Nixon was on it at uh, what it would have been 1 p.m., I think, our time, there he was saying, you know, he, he was on the shortwave radio. We used to get things from the BBC and the Voice of America over here on the shortwave. They had this really powerful shortwave receiving station, and then they'd, they'd broadcast it. So you'd get the shortwave effect. And I remember him saying, you know, leave office before my time. You know, he's a part of every bolt of my body. And uh, the teacher said, Ah, we'll turn this off then, not having music and movement today. And I was saying, leave it on, I want to hear it. But they wouldn't let me listen. I had to hear about Nixon's resignation speech later. And I used to listen to Parliament as well right throughout my childhood. So for me, finally getting to 18 and being able to vote, it was a piece of marvellousness. So good on you for voting, Daniel. It gladdens my heart to hear about young people anywhere participating in the democratic process. Good on you. More on one password now as we go to Colombia and Luis Pena is in touch and he says, I would like to make some comments about the use of one password in Microsoft Edge. I hope this clarifies some confusion that may result from the new one password extension that one password is using in Edge. There are two extensions that can be installed in Edge to use one password. 1Password X Password Manager and 1Password Extension Desktop App Required. The first of these extensions is the newer extension to use 1Password and it is the one that you find when searching for 1Password extensions in Edge. This extension apparently does not require you to use the 1Password Desktop App. In order to use 1Password with an Edge, you must invoke it using Control-Shift-X. There are several things that I don't like about this extension. First, each time you invoke 1Password, you must enter your master password. Second, this shortcut doesn't fill out the login information automatically. You must select within the list of sites that you have previously installed in 1Password. Finally, when you log into a new site, JAWS doesn't read the prompt to save the new username and password into 1Password. The second extension is the one that Google Chrome uses, and it works as you demonstrated in your podcast. One password can be invoked using control backslash, and it fills out the information automatically for previously stored sites. 
Furthermore, when you log in to a new site, JAWS reads the prompt to save the login information into one password. Based on the above considerations, I think that from an accessibility standpoint, the older extension, one password extension, desktop app required, is much better. It is important to point out that in order to install this extension, you must Google it as it is written above because it doesn't appear in the extensions list of Edge. I hope this clarifies some of the confusion that has arisen as a result of the newer 1Password X extension. Finally, there is a book entitled Take Control of 1Password that is pretty comprehensive about the use of this manager, and that is available on Bookshare. Thank you, Luis. I just want to clarify a couple of things. 1Password X is available for all browsers. You can use 1Password X in the same browsers that you can use the 1Password extension to the 1Password app. So the choice is yours. The advantage of 1Password X is that there is no other app required. It's HTML based. It all lives in the browser. And in fact, what you can do when you log in with 1Password X is that when you're in, say, an edit field where it's asking for a username, all you have to do is down arrow and it will come up with either one entry, if only one is relevant, or in the example that I gave when I did the demo where I've got several Twitter logins, you can just down arrow and select which Twitter login you want. Another advantage is that when all your sites are listed that way, it can act as a really cool favorites type tool, bookmarking tool. Now, you can do that with the original 1Password app as well. And actually, I prefer it. For all that, I just wanted to clarify that. For all that, I do also prefer the original 1Password with its extension to the desktop app. It's got lots of keyboard commands, standard controls, and I just prefer it. It could be because I've been using it for a long time. But I actually do think that overall, it is better from a usability point of view. But people's tastes vary on these things. Now, the way to get any Chrome extension for Microsoft Edge that is not available in the Edge store is simply to go to the Google Chrome store. And if you go to the Google Chrome store and search for 1Password, you will find both in there. And if you're using Microsoft Edge and you've gone into Settings, and you've enabled the feature that lets you install Chrome extensions, then you can just go ahead and install the Chrome extensions. So that's the best way. The way I would do it, add the Google Chrome Store to your Microsoft Edge favorites if you are an Edge user, and grab it from there. But you can use both with Edge. The Chrome Store is a treasure trove, of course, because Google Chrome has been around so long, and all the extensions are compatible with Microsoft Edge. Thank you to others who have also chimed in with a very similar comment about 1Password X and the differences between the two. If you do go ahead and try 1Password X and you're already a 1Password user and you've got the extension that's associated with the desktop app, just keep in mind that when you install the 1Password X extension, it won't delete the other one, but it will disable it to avoid any conflicts So if you uninstall 1Password X, you will need to go back into your browser's extension settings and re-enable the original 1Password extension for the desktop app. Does 1Password auto-login your stuff? Like, you know how Safari seems to be kind of, you know, hit or miss about this where you enter, you hit the right button, and then sometimes it'll load the login page and other times you have to hit the login button yourself. Does 1Password automatically click the login button 
and two, I don't know if they do. I would think they don't because Apple doesn't. But does 1Password allow the storage slash entry of the three slash four digit CVV code on the back of your credit card? Apple does not for security reasons, I guess. And I don't know if 1Password does. I'm sure you could store it in the thing probably like maybe in your description or something. I don't know if it will actually enter that for you. Well, Joe, I think the behavior of 1Password when logging in is very similar to the way that iCloud Keychain works. Sometimes you have to select the login button, and other times it seems to be able to find it and log in for you. So I think it depends on the way that the website is laid out. Uh, Regarding credit cards, absolutely, yes. The CVV is saved in the credit card information if you want it to be. If you don't want to enter the CVV as an added security measure, then you don't have to enter it into the uh, entry. It'll save it. But if you do enter it, then yes, provided you're on a website that's fairly conventional, it will fill in all of the credit card information, including the CVV. Jonathan Mosin, Mosin at Large Hi Jonathan, I just thought I would let you know Oh sorry, it's me here You would know that anyway I just thought I would let you know That I, for quite a few years Have had a Samsung home theatre system And it gave up the ghost a few days ago And Ray looked to see if they had a spare motherboard for it Because he thought it might be the motherboard But they said they didn't do these parts anymore so it's more or less obsolete so I thought right so I thought long and hard about it and decided to get Sonus so Ian helped me with it because I mean I did not have a clue I wanted to have surround sound but I had no idea how to go about it so Ian said that I would need a beam and to play ones I think they're called so we got them, I did what Ian said and got them. So we haven't set it up yet because it just came this afternoon. So I hope Ray manage, I'm sure he'll manage to, to set it up. But Ian told me afterwards that he's got a subwoofer. Well, I've not got that. And I'm just wondering, would it be okay to have the sound beam and the two play ones without the subwoofer, or would I really need it? And will I get the surround sound? Ian said I would get the surround sound with the two speakers. So I'll let you know how I get on with it. Oh, it's exciting, isn't it, May? I hope you enjoy your immersion into the world of Sonos. And Ian's set you right there. There are two Sonos home theater options that are current on the market today. There is the Beam, and then there is the Sonos Arc, which is what we recently upgraded to. If you use something like Sonos Ones or even a couple of old Play Ones as rear surrounds, then yes, that will give you the surround sound. It'll give you basically 5.0 surround sound, so you'll have the Beam in front of you, and then you'll have the surround sound speakers positioned at a good distance for listening behind you when you are in your usual listening position. If you can swing it, the sub from Sonos is incredible. It is also incredibly expensive, really, for what it does. But my goodness, it makes the world of difference. Full, rich bass. And of course, when you are listening to movies that have been encoded in 5.1, 
So you're listening to most of what's on Netflix or Apple TV Plus or any of those streaming services. And I'm sure if you've got um, TV coming in on 5.1, you'll hear a difference as well. It really is amazing. I personally would not be without the sub, but you still get surround sound without it. And you might just like to listen to see whether the bass is enough for you with the beam, which is okay for a smaller room. The Arc will fill a bigger room better, and it supports Dolby Atmos. But as I've been saying on the show over the months, it is hard to find Dolby Atmos content that has audio description. Apple TV Plus seems to be the wonderland for this. If they're encoding something in Dolby Atmos, then they're also doing the audio description in Adobe Atmos format as well. And that is really quite immersive and quite incredible. So you do get, I think, better sound and that Dolby Atmos with the Arc, but the Beam is still a really great product. And of course, you'll get so much more than home theater. You'll get the Sonos app, which you will find is highly accessible, and you can plug all sorts of streaming music services into the Sonos. So you've got a wonderful new world opening up, And the good thing about Sonos is that you can retrofit things. So if you listen to the beam for a while and you find that you would like a lot more rich full bass, you can just add the sub at any time. Good luck with the new Sonos in your life. Very exciting. Breaking news from Stan Luttrell on the Envision subject. He says, I wanted to let you know that I appear to have solved the problem. Concerning the pesky problem of me having to constantly re-input my email address in order to keep using the software in an uninterrupted fashion. I should also say that Karthik got in touch with me and was working with me on this issue. He suggested that I use an alternate method of signing in and I signed in with Apple and I used the fingerprint ID using my SE2020. Thanks for mentioning the problem on Mosin at Large. It used another email address, but I didn't have to be sent a verification email that I had to respond to in order to keep using the software. Your comments about the problems with Gmail seem to be a salient point since you also had problems with customers that used your internet business. I am able to look and see that my account is a lifetime subscription. The weird thing for me is that I was able to respond to a confirmation email when I first made a purchase of the lifetime subscription. Oh well, all appears to be right now. I'm really glad that that's the case, Dan. And in my experience, the Envision customer service is top-notch because I suppose they could have said, all we can tell you is that our records confirm the email has been sent. We can't control it once it leaves us, and I think that would be a reasonable response, but clearly they went the extra mile and got it sorted for you. So that's great to hear. Hi, Jonathan. Regarding the Bunny Bulletin, where you discussed New Zealand immigration laws, let me put a hypothetical situation. Suppose that I, as a Dutch guy, had met a nice Suriname lady in 2010. I say Suriname because that means she already speaks Dutch. We got married in 2015, but because we both hold very well-paying jobs and we don't want to abandon them, we stay in our respective countries and I go there a couple of times per year and she comes here a couple of times per year. It happens. Now, in 2019, she gets a terrible accident which leaves her quadra 
paraplegic, so unable to move any of her limbs. She doesn't have any family left in Suriname, so we decide that she should come here so that I can fulfill my obligation as a husband to be close to her and take care of her. Well, there would be practical problems, I'm sure, but I think she would definitely get a residence permit. And I could be wrong, I'm not an expert on migration law, but I'm pretty sure about this. The same situation, but now I'm a New Zealand guy and she's an American lady. She would be denied entry to New Zealand, I understand, given how much her disability costs the New Zealand society. And that's evident. I mean, Bunny, being blind, still pays way more taxes than she costs the New Zealand system due to her disability. But a quadriplegic is very expensive to take care of. If I'm right about this, I think it's a major human rights issue. If the cost of a person's disability to society is such a major factor in a decision you take about that person, yeah, I just have to refer to the Germans uh, 80 years ago. You know what I'm talking about. It's a very, very slippery slope. Maybe I get some facts wrong, but if I get all of this right, if I were in New Zealand, I wouldn't leave it at a mention in my influential international podcast. I think I would consider taking serious political action to change this situation. Fortunately, in Europe, I don't think it would be possible to implement a policy like this because it would violate European human rights treaties. But I should add that I'm not an expert on international human rights treaties at all, so maybe I get things wrong. But it's an issue you should give consideration. Thanks, Tim. I agree to a point. I agree that the situation we face in New Zealand is discriminatory, but I don't agree that I can solve all of New Zealand's problems, I'm afraid. The good news is that there are people advocating on these issues, and rightfully so. There was an excellent report produced, I believe it was just this year, called Burdens and Borders, which specifically highlights the issues surrounding the immigration policies in New Zealand and disabled people. What we have at the moment is that anyone applying for a New Zealand visa must have a, uh, and I quote, acceptable standard of health, unquote, for several reasons, but most noticeably to ensure that they won't impose significant costs or demand on health or special education services. In fact, I do remember that uh, somebody that I knew growing up had all sorts of problems coming in from the Netherlands in New Zealand. This is sadly not a new problem. That was back in the uh, early 80s, and they actually had to uh, get special ministerial approval from the Ministry of Immigration at the time for a waiver because, you know, they were very capable family coming to New Zealand. We have quite a, a large Dutch population here. The family went on to make a great contribution. The dad was a small business owner, but one of the children was blind as a result of retinal blastoma. And as many people will know, that can sometimes result in ongoing medical conditions. Cancer can return. It did in that case, actually. But nevertheless, that individual made a huge contribution to New Zealand society. And of course, we just don't know what the future holds for any of us anyway. 
This is not in New Zealand immigration legislation. You'll find all the gory details in the operational manual for New Zealand's Immigration Service, and it says that an applicant for permanent residency will fail if they, and I'll go through the bullet points here, have condition or conditions that will likely require health services worth over $41,000, or have a condition or conditions that will likely require health services where current demand is not being met, or are likely to qualify for any special education services funded by the Ongoing Resources Scheme, ORS, or have a range of conditions that are listed in a particular subsection ranging from uncontrolled epilepsy to autistic spectrum disorders, from paraplegia to any psychiatric illness that has required hospitalisation. Across the board, it is irrelevant whether an applicant can privately access these services the mere possibility that they will require social services is enough. Now, it's all pretty nasty, and uh, what I can say is that I have been responsible for two people coming into New Zealand under the partnership category, and we did not strike that problem. I don't know whether it was considered, you know, how marginal those applications were, but you're right, it's, it's a really questionable area. And I'm delighted that disability advocates are working on the issue. I think it's also symptomatic of the fact that we do not have anybody with a significant disability in Parliament at the moment. Now, it doesn't make it right, but we are not the only one. I'm aware of some terrible discrimination that goes on in Australia, for example. And I can remember, actually, that it wasn't that long ago that while every other New Zealander could just shoot across the Tasman if they were a New Zealand resident and take up residence there. Even if you were visiting Australia, a blind person required a visa. And if you as a blind New Zealander turned up at the border in Australia without a visa, you could get shipped back again. And I don't know whether that applied to other disabilities besides blindness, but there were people who quite rightly campaigned about that and got the policy changed so that now it is not necessary for a blind person to have a visa to go to Australia when they're coming from New Zealand when no one else does. But it's still pretty bad. For example, Australia has a scheme called the National Disability Insurance Scheme, the NDIS. And even if you've been living and contributing to Australian society for years. If you're a New Zealand resident, you don't qualify for NDIS. And there are various other discriminatory provisions regarding people who've lived a long time but have not taken up Australian citizenship getting those provisions. I would be really interested in hearing from people around the world about any discriminatory practices they have come across regarding disabled people trying to move to another country. Perhaps you have tried to do this yourself and fallen foul of immigration laws. Coincidentally enough, Roger D is here. Roger D. Peterson. And he says, how do I immigrate into New Zealand? I may want to follow my friend Kent Cullors. He came there when George W. Bush won a second term. He said that since that son of a Bush got, oh, that's quite clever, got elected again, he was leaving. But G.W. Bush 
was an order of magnitude better than the Trump. Well, thank you, Roger. Hang on in there because people have got a chance to have their say on the 3rd of November. And I am following this with a mixture of interest and, frankly, trepidation. Sometimes I just can't follow the election coverage in the United States because it is just so awful seeing what is going on over there with innocent people being affected by COVID-19 and the bizarre behavior of the president. It's almost too painful to sit through. I used to follow his tweets, and then I just had to stop because they were so aggravating and nonsensical and irritating and just filled me with such genuine fear that someone like that had access to one of the world's biggest nuclear arsenals and, you know, is in charge of a pretty significant country in the world. It was just too depressing. So I had to stop following his tweets. Unfortunately, many of the political journalists that I follow retweet him. So there's very little escape if you're interested in following the political process. And of course, being ostrich-like is not the answer either, is it? You can't be ostrich-like. Being ostrich-like is not my style. I have always stood up for what I believe in. And in fact, if you have listened to In the Arena that Glenn Gordon did with me, you will remember that uh, back in 2003, I set up an internet radio station, a special one called the Broadcast for Peace, which protested the Iraq war and the lack of attention to international law and the fact that there was deliberate confusion in the American mind between Al-Qaeda and Iraq, and that no weapons of mass destruction had been found, and that it was all highly dodgy. It's one of the things I'm most proud of in my life, that when there was all this hysteria in the United States, you know, Dixie Chicks being castigated and things, that I did stand up. And, you know, I had people contacting ACB, wanting me fired from ACB Radio for expressing a public opinion. It just goes to show, you know, that there are people who are quite happy to defend the First Amendment unless you disagree with them. And then all of a sudden, the First Amendment ain't such a good thing and people should shut up. Shut up! Shut up! Absolutely extraordinary. And when I left ACB Radio, for completely different reasons, a lot of people thought that uh, it was because of that that somehow ACB had frowned upon me doing the broadcast for peace, which was absolutely not the case. The reason why I bring it up, though, is to say that I was staunchly against the behavior of George W. Bush, particularly when he wasn't legitimately elected in the first place. But boy, who would have ever thought that we might get to a point where we looked back on the Bush years with some degree of fondness? Now, it's interesting that you raise this question, Roger, about immigrating to New Zealand. I met Kent, actually, because Kent was a good friend of Russell Smith the founder of Pulse Data International, which later, of course, became Humanware when Pulse Data bought VisuAid. And when he came to New Zealand, uh, we got together. I sort of showed him around. I took him on the slingshot because, of course, for those who don't know Kent, Kent was a uh, scientist for NASA. He used to listen for extraterrestrial signals. He was searching for, for signals from outer space. Very interesting. Really interesting guy. And uh, we went on this thing called the slingshot, which is like a reverse bungee jump. 
and it catapults you into the air on this sort of massive bungee thing. And he said, you know, this is the closest to actually being in space that he was going to get. So we had a good time doing all of that stuff. But I do find it fascinating that so many Americans are interested in New Zealand. And it happens after every election or some sort of significant presidential debate. And people in New Zealand are watching for this now. So during the first Trump-Biden debate, well, you can't really call it a debate, can you? Slanging match, rant. There was a massive spike from the United States looking at New Zealand's immigration website. Now, I do understand why disillusioned Democrats would like to come to New Zealand. I completely get that. You know, we've got a universal healthcare system. We've got a young progressive leader who's had a baby out of wedlock and is an agnostic at best, possibly an atheist. We've had a succession of atheist prime ministers, with the brief exception of a Catholic who was around for about a year. But since 1999, our prime ministers have been atheists. So I understand why people who are liberally inclined in the US context might want to look here. What I do find funny, though, is the people who, after President Obama was elected, were looking to move to New Zealand. Why would you, if you are a Republican, want to come here? We can't stand guns. We've banned them. We have a universal health care system. We don't have any track with religion getting involved in politics. In fact, there's a backlash when that happens, as is evidenced by our recent election campaign. So why would you want to come here if you were a Republican and you were annoyed that a Democrat had been elected president? What on earth would you find satisfying about being in this country? Anyway, as you hear, Roger, sadly, and and much to our detriment, it is not easy for blind people to come in here. I mean, it it has been done. In fact, I know of uh, a guy who... um, migrated to New Zealand without any need for the partnership category or anything like that. So there isn't a blanket ban on disabled people coming here, but it still is not a good look. And I suspect far too many are being refused than should be. Hi, Jonathan. My name is Trudy. I live in the States in Pennsylvania. I'm in my mid 60s almost totally blind. I had a little more sight when I was a child, but I've only ever had sight in one eye. Uh, This question involves hearing aids. I know that you're very much involved with blind hearing aid users. I haven't found anybody who has experienced this strange phenomenon that I have. I recently received Signia Pure Charge and Go X hearing aids, which seem to be working very well for me. I have a mild hearing loss, But when I am outdoors, I find that um, I've always used echolocation, and it sounds like there is a barrier around me. The barrier is of varying densities depending on which program I use. I have talked this over with my audiologist. There's one program called Privacy that almost removes the barrier sensation, which is great, but then things are not as distinct sounding. When I switch to another program called Noisy Environment, it cuts down a lot of the undercurrent of noise and vibration, but then the seeming barrier comes back. There's one program that makes it actually sound like I'm standing in front of a brick wall. Um, I have a guide dog, and I'm hesitant at at times uh, working with her, and she, I'm sure, thinks things are 
very strange because I feel like I'm about to bump into something. I believe that the problem is that Signia has a new technology, or fairly new technology, um, called Own Voice Processing, OVP. It's supposed to make your own voice sound better to you. I have done broadcasting and public speaking in much of my life, and I realize that nobody particularly likes the way their own voice sounds when it's amplified, so I don't particularly care about how my own voice sounds. Signia is very proud of their technology, so I, I don't know that there's going to be a way to easily remove that technology from the aids that I have, but I wondered if you've had any experience with this kind of thing and if you know any way to counteract it. I'm looking into possibly finding ways to retrain my brain to ignore this phenomenon. It's really weird because sometimes when I feel like the brick wall, for example, my left eye, which is the only one that has vision, actually thinks that it sees a wall in front of me. So it would be really cool to work with a physiologist or something uh, at some point. But um, just wondering if uh, maybe you have some ideas or if you've heard of this before. My audiologist is stumped, and even he has a hard time getting through to Signia. Always good to hear from listeners who make their first contribution, Trudy. So thank you so much for being in touch. This is an interesting one. I know that many hearing aid users struggle with echolocation and report that while they have an increased quality of life in general, the echolocation thing really is an issue. Part of it is echolocation, part of it is sense of direction. And certainly before the hearing aids that I have now, I used to struggle a lot in things like big banks of elevators in a hotel and someone would push the button or I'd push the button and I'd hear the ping from the elevator and it was really difficult to tell where that ping was coming from. But echolocation, the idea that something is directly in front of you, that would be a real serious impediment. And I wonder whether you have considered trying another set of aids. I don't know whether you went down the route of trialing your hearing aids to see if they worked out for you, but a lot of audiologists will let you do that and then swap out the aids and try something different if they're not working out for you. And it sounds like you are a pretty proficient user of echolocation, so this is a big deal. One of the problems that hearing aid users have had sometimes is something called the occlusion effect, And I suspect that this is what Signature are trying to deal with, with their fancy-schmancy voice technology. With certain hearing aid molds or fittings, it can sometimes sound like your voice is really loud and boomy in your head. It almost feels like something's blocking your head. And you can deal with that to some degree with venting, creating extra vents in the molds. Because you have a moderate hearing loss, I'm thinking you probably have in the ear or even in the canal little hearing aids and so your options there may be limited i groaned in frustration and empathy when i heard you say that even your audiologist is having trouble getting through to the manufacturer of the aids i think that hearing aid manufacturers really are looking a gift horse in the mouth in terms of not engaging directly at the product management level with blind people because we are in general critical listeners And we can provide really great feedback on these things. But boy, it is really hard talking directly to the manufacturer. I think that hearing aids these days should be treated more like assistive technology, but actually they're considered by most people medical devices. And there's the problem. 
but perhaps others have experience with these hearing aids and can offer something useful. Alternatively, Trudy, if it's bugging you this much and there's no immediate solution in sight or in in hearing range, uh, you might want to consider another product because life is too short and you're obviously a good user of echolocation. I wish you the best with it and do let us know how you get on. Hi, Jonathan. This is Wes from Iowa. I had a few points from shows past. First, the self-driving cars. I'm really excited to see what's going to happen with that. I don't think we're ready for it now, but uh, in the future, and I think it will be very soon that we start to see some things with it. When I went to Vegas for the NFB convention last year, I did opt in to Lyft for them to give me a ride in a self-driving car, but I didn't go enough places to get one. And the only rides that I did get were live drivers. Living in the Midwest where it's really spread out, uh, I think it's going to be exciting to see what happens. The only parts of it that I do worry about are failures. You know, what happens if something does go awry Are we as blind people going to be able to get the situation back under control, even if that means just getting the car to the side of the road and safely stopped and then uh, deal with the situation? I'm hoping that those considerations are there. You know, on airplanes now, they have redundant systems. And I assume self-driving cars will be much the same. Uh, For example, the autopilot, there's, I think many airplanes have two to three autopilots And then there's a watchdog system that looks after all of those. And so there's like a vote, if you will, the the autopilots report back and it figures out if they all agree, then that's what it does. If they don't agree, then that tries to figure out if there's a fault in the, in one of them. So hopefully I would assume they're going to build redundancy in them. And I am in agreement with you that I don't think we're going to own the cars as much as we're going to rent them. You know, if it's just you, then a a single person car might come. If there's a big group of people going to a party or whatever, maybe there's going to be a van or or something. Or, you know, maybe you need to bring something home from a store. Maybe you'll get some sort of a truck. Lyft was touting a stat at some point. I think it was like cars spend 60% of their lives just sitting at different locations parked or whatever. And so they're really big on leveraging the community use of vehicles. Uh, which I'm not opposed to as long as you're able to get from point A to point B without many delays. I do worry about small towns. Will there be cars in those towns stationed to pick people up or, or how will it work? Moving on to the iOS stuff, I am not looking to buy anything. I am intrigued by the HomePod. I had a HomePod for about three weeks when it first came out. I was intrigued. I went to the Apple store. I got it. But Siri is ultimately what led me not to keep it. Here's a funny story. It was about six in the morning and I was jamming out to some Billy Joel. I, you know, I told Apple Music to play some Billy Joel and a good song came on. I can't remember which one at this point, but I said, Ahoy, HomePod, substitute the correct words, turn the volume up to 18, 1-8%. I didn't say 1-8 at the time, but I wanted it to turn to 18%. It misheard me and turned it up to 80, 8-0%. I feel bad for my neighbors at 6.40 in the morning when whatever song was blasted way louder than it, I wanted it to be. Plus, at the, that early stage, there was something wrong with AirPlay. And I I was a big Sirius XM user at the time, 
and I just, the cost didn't justify me keeping it. It sounded pretty good playing the Blade Runner movie through. It wasn't Dolby Atmos, but it sounded really awesome. Um, I, I miss it, kind of. And so now that it's down to $99, I might get one. I at least want to see it first. I'm not going to get a new phone. I like the iPhone 11 that I have now. It's funny, I'm, I'm a technologist, but I still have not taken the plunge and upgraded the software. Uh, I've got a lot going on at work right now, and I just I, I need the stability in my phone. So I'm waiting. I have a weird way of deciding when to get the updates. I try to get a consensus from people that I know are on the beta if they see things improve with a certain version. And then I also wait for app updates to slow down, you know, because during the first part of it, there's always the big push of updates. And then I also wait for Apple to give it to me. I'm having a weird issue with my Apple Watch too, and I've only seen this happen two or three times where the battery will, um, so like you plug it in and it's 28%. It might go down to 22% and then start charging. And the first thing when I called Apple about this today, they wanted me to update, and I'm glad they didn't make me do it on the phone because I'm going to wait till 14.2, I think. Um, I don't want to update right now. So hopefully this is not an indicator of my watch. Having battery issues, I will be glad to see the battery health feature. I really like battery health on the phone, so it's good to see that come into the watch. That thing uh, Peggy Kern reported with her Apple Watch, I've seen that before too, where you have six to ad infinitum versions of the watch in your activity app and elsewhere. And I reported that to Apple about one and a half, two years ago, and they told me that you had to keep all of those in there because... Each watch's activity is stored separately, and so if you delete them, you're going to lose some of your activity data. Is that true? I have no idea, uh, but they did escalate it to engineering from Apple accessibility, and that's what I was told, so I had other things to worry about, so I didn't do anything with it. It's that time of the show again when Bonnie Mosin is back live in studio this time. Hi, guys. It was very sad last week. Oh, but it was a wonderful retreat. I Mo- really moping it. around all by myself. Uh, well, that well, when you're you just have to find stuff to do that makes you happy when you're alone. Meditate, like read listen to politics. Yeah, I mean, you were busy yeah. listening to the election. I and, was. I was into it, man. Um, What's the tea today? The tea is peppermint. Very good, very good, because after playing and being quite, you know, congratulatory of Daniel Simro for voting for the first time, which is very exciting, he sends me an email telling me he's just had for lunch. Mm. Yeah. What kind? I have no idea, and he's on on my block list now because he said a rude word. He said There's nothing wrong with No, 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 no. So let's talk about the guide dog future. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you must have had an opinion on oh, that yeah. wee segment that yes, was on. Yes, absolutely. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, as long as I can get on a plane physically, mentally, and make that 20-hour ride to New Jersey, I will always have a guide dog. And I've been a guide dog user for 30 years. So as long as I can make that trip, I will do it. I do. I do not ever see myself... Without a guide dog, unless just my health prohibits it or, or anything like that. It is important, of course, to have the cane because there could be a time between dogs or could be a couple months or, you know, things happen and it's good to have those skills. Ever since I was little, I have been hearing about 
the smart cane, the smart glasses, and they were going to revolutionize mobility. And you'd be able to take the smart cane, walk down the street, and it would tell you where you were and blah, blah, blah. It's never come to fruition in the way that I would want it to be. We're pretty close with the WeWalk, aren't we? I've never used the WeWalk. Right. So, but, and there's always been issues. I mean, even with the laser cane, which was the big one in the 70s, 80s, whatever, if it got wet, there was problems. So it couldn't stand up to the environment. Even those Pathfinder things or the sonar glasses that you could hold, they would just give feedback. They wouldn't tell you. I mean, if I were going to have something that I would want to use instead of a guide dog or cane, it would have to be something like walking with a sighted person that talked all the time, that told you we're going past Starbucks, we're going past farmers. That's right. And that's where we're headed. Let's say, for example, that you put your skepticism of technology to one side. So you're skeptical that the technology will ever come because you've you've seen promises not being fulfilled, and I get that. Mm -hmm. But let's say that it was in the future – and there was a device out there that actually was more than just a smart cane or a pair of glasses. It actually guided you in the same way that a dog guides you. You hold on to it and it guides you. It, it moves you around obstacles. It's very close to sighted guide. What justification would we have for continuing to use guide dogs if we reach that point? There's a lot of things. I mean, I think that for one reason – Traveling with a guide dog is very liberating. I mean, why would I go out and take my robot for a walk? You know, because what, you want to go from A to B. Yeah, but why would I just go? You know, what point would it be? Guide dogs, I enjoy just having that live animal with me, and you know, getting out and just having her there, talking to her. I mean, I can't imagine myself talking to the robot much. You know, it may be like Alexa, but it's a it's a living sentient being. And I just I love the freedom of having an animal and and maybe part of it comes with growing up with horses, growing up with animals and just having them as a part of my life and seeing what they can do and that they do love working with people. You know, if they didn't, they wouldn't do it. You can't make them be a guide dog. Also, I think socially, even though it can become annoying at times, people will engage with you about the cute dog. And I just don't see people coming up and saying, oh, my God, your robot. Oh, man, I have, you know. There are a couple of things here. Obviously, a lot of sighted people, a lot of people who don't have any impairment, like taking their dog for a walk as well, for for exactly the same reasons that you're talking about. And so Mm -hmm. I can't see that changing. I guess my question for you would be, if we get to the point where technology actually allows us to do more, get more information, much cheaper so that more people can have access to this technology, you know, no waiting lists because you don't have to breed a robot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what justification would we have at that point if the technology was really good in claiming special provisions as disabled people for service animals just because, oh, I like walking with a dog. Because lots of people like walking with a dog. But that doesn't mean that they're allowed to take their pet into, you know, wherever they want to go. But it's a choice. 
I mean, it's, I mean, there's a, such a small population in the world. I think it's only 2% of blind people who actually work with guide dogs. Yeah, only they, fractionally higher than it, Braille readers, yes, actually. Yes, it's it? very small. And there are reasons for that. Some of it is choice. They choose not to use a guide dog, which is fine. It is a privilege, not a right. There may be an older population who has other physical disabilities who may you know, preclude them from working with a guide dog. Um, there may be access to it. There are some countries where there are not guide dog schools or culturally it probably wouldn't be the easiest place to work a dog. Hmm. So in that case, maybe. But again, you're dealing with technology at which can fail. You know, which but guide can, dogs can get sick too. They can get sick. But if you're walking down, say, Lambton Key or something and your computer goes out, and I've had that with the GPS crapping out on the bus, you know, what do you do? do you- but if your guide dog collapses or has a, dare I say it, a major bout of diarrhea or something, mm-hmm. I mean, you should have your cane in yeah, a backpack absolutely. or something. Yeah, absolutely. Should. Anyway, shouldn't you? Because yeah. guide dogs aren't fail-safe either. No, but I would say that technology is more likely to fail mm. just because of the type of tech. I mean, what we're talking about is very advanced, and I don't see it being for something that you're looking at that could do that. I don't see it being a lot cheaper than a guide dog, honestly. Well, I'm not sure about that because, as I indicated with my back-of-the-envelope calculations, mm-hmm. at the very low end of the spectrum, you'd be looking at $7,000 US per year if the guide dog team worked for 10 years, right? Yeah. So seventy k, $7,000 a year. You could get a lot of tech for $7,000 mm-hmm. a year, especially if you are mass-producing for you know the entire mar- uh, blind market and developing countries that sort of thing, but I, I guess it's, it's interesting because certainly I agree with you one hundred percent in terms of what exists in twenty twenty. But I think it's really important that we don't lock ourselves into a twenty twenty yeah. time warp because I'll bet you that if we were sitting here doing Mosin at large in you know the late eighteen hundreds, mm-hmm. <laughs> you would have said the same thing when the motor car started to come out about the horses because you're a horse yeah. person too. Yeah, but people still use horses for a lot of different things. I mean, you have race horses, you have show horses, barrel horses. You know, people that just like going trail riding. I mean, most people don't use them to get around unless you're Amish, but buggies. (laughs) But, you know, and even in some countries, they still use horses. But are we going to come to the point where we say, okay, now let's have robotic racehorses running in the, you know, breeder's cup? Is this going to become a thing? I think that's different because in in that case, you 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 really there's some athleticism about that. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a different thing. But for me, no, I'm never going to give up my guide dog because I know the joy, the absolute pleasure that having a guide dog has given me over the years. And I have known people who, because sometimes with blindness, it can be very social isolating. And I have known people that were guide dog users that say, you know, my dog is what gets me up in the morning. Oh, man. I also hear guide dog handlers saying, oh, my dog is an icebreaker. Yeah. But that's kind of sad that people will only talk to you because of your dog. I mean, I think that's sort of a commentary on society. I have to say my iPhone is also an icebreaker. Yeah. Because <laughs> if I'm on a bus or something like that and I'm using my iPhone, it is amazing how often people come up to me and say, uh, excuse me, do you? Working. Yeah, your screen's not working. Do you need help? Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just, I mean, it's Or kind what of- are you doing with that iPhone? <laughs> 
Good on you. So that's that's. It would be interesting to see. Anyone I mean, who thinks it's peaceful around our house, <laughs> you would be wrong. <laughs> To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a US number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin FM.